Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. All right, welcome to episode 95 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, I'm closing out my three-part series on the doctrines of Calvinism known as TULIP versus the early Christians. I'm going to start out by doing a brief recap of the doctrines of total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement uh, from the mouths of, or from the pens rather, of John Calvin and John Piper, and then also what the early Christians said about that. But the majority of this episode is going to be focused on the last two doctrines, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith, as that will help others hear this channel a little bit more easily. I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, along with BDK and Kurt, and I really want to encourage you to go check out their uh, website, omegafrequency.com, and check out their YouTube channel, Omega Frequency, where you're going to find lots of important content that can help guide you through this, this strange world and these strange times that we're living in. Also, I want to direct you to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Baker where I put out two videos a month for $5 or more. It will be a blessing to you. And finally, the early Christian quotes I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get episode 95 rolling. All right. Well, as we get into this, I want to remind you that the purpose of this series is not to try to slam Calvinism or Reformed theology, but rather to present a fair view of the beliefs of uh, Calvinism, as stated by John Calvin himself, and then a modern interpretation by John Piper. I'm taking uh, quotes from Calvin's own works and from Piper's book, Five Points about the Five Doctrines of Reformed Theology known as TULIP. And I want to remind you that links to these citations can be found in the show notes, okay? So you can read it for yourself. All right, well, uh, like I said in the intro, I'm going to review now the first three points of TULIP, starting with total depravity. And so this is from Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, Chapter 1, Section 8, he writes of total depravity, the two things, therefore, that are to be distinctly observed, namely, that being thus perverted and corrupted in all the parts of our nature, we are merely on account of such corruption deservedly condemned by God. Hence, even infants bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's wombs suffer not for another's, but for their own defect. Next comes the other point, namely, that this perversity in us never ceases, 
but constantly produces new fruits. In other words, these works of the flesh, which we formerly described for our evil, sorry, for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. All right. Here's um, Irenaeus, though, early Christian writing around 180 about what he believes about the nature of man. This is from book four, uh, chapter 37. Men are possessed of free will and endowed with the faculty of making a good choice. It is not true, therefore, that some are by nature good and others bad. But if some had been made by nature bad and others good, these latter would not be deserving of praise for being good, for such were they created, nor were the, would the former be reprehensible, for thus they were made originally. But since all men are of the same nature, able both to hold fast to do what is good, and on the other hand, having also the power to cast it from them and not to do it, some do justly receive praise but the others are blamed and receive a just condemnation because of their rejection of what is fair and good. All right, now jumping into the doctrine of unconditional election, also going to cite Calvin here from his Institutes of the Christian Religion in book three, chapter 21, section seven. He writes this, we say then that scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it, ha- whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. We maintain that this counsel, as regards the elect, is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth while those whom he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, but at the same time, incomprehensible judgment. Now, this is Justin Martyr uh, speaking about the election of believers and what that depends on. Justin writes in 160, If the word of God retells that some angels and men will be certainly punished, It did so because it foreknew that they would be unchangeable. However, this is not because God created them so, for all who wish for it can obtain mercy from God if they repent. Now, speaking a little bit more on this issue of foreknowledge and how that that corresponds to election, Irenaeus writes in 180, God for knowing all things prepared fit habitations for both, kindly conferring that light which they desire on those who seek after the light of incorruption and resort to it. But for the despisers and mockers who avoid and turn themselves away from this light and who do, as it were, blind themselves, he has prepared darkness suitable to persons who oppose the light and he has inflicted an appropriate punishment upon those who try to avoid being subject to him. Submission to God is eternal rest, so that they who shun the light have a place worthy of their flight, 
and those who fly from eternal rest have a habitation in accordance with their fleeing. And so one of the things you see from the early Christians is that God uh, has determined that there will be um, great punishment for those who reject him, and there will be great reward for those who choose him and receive him. He does not with, uh, it is not in an arbitrary uh, or unknowable way choose those before they have done anything good or bad uh, to receive him or to be damned to, uh, to eternal punishment, but rather foreknowing who will choose him by the grace he gives them and by their own free will choose him and foreknowing who will reject him by the grace he's given him and their own free will. He has prepared, prepared both rewards and punishments for those people. All right, now let's get into limited atonement, reviewing this. This is Calvin's commentary on 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where John writes, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay. So Calvin is commenting on this passage. He writes, and not for ours only. He added this for the sake of amplifying in order that the faithful might be assured that the expiation made by Christ extends to all who by faith embrace the gospel. Christ suffered sufficiently for the whole world but efficiently only for the elect. The design of John was no other than to make this benefit common to the whole church. Then under the word all or whole, he does not include the reprobate, but designates those who should believe as well as those who were then scattered through various parts of the world. For then is really made evident as it is meet the grace of Christ when it is declared to be the only true salvation of the world. So there Calvin is saying that the atonement was only for those who would believe. Here's Justin Martyr around 160. The father of all wished his Christ for the whole human family to take upon him the curses of all knowing that after he had been crucified and was dead, he would raise him up. His father caused him to suffer these things in behalf of the human family. Yet you did not commit the deed as in obedience to the will of God, for you did not practice piety when you slew the prophets. And let none of you say, if his father wished him to suffer this in order that by his stripes the human race might be healed, we have done no wrong." If indeed you repent of your sins and recognize him to be Christ and observe his commandments, then you may assert this. For, as I have said before, remission of sins shall be yours. All right, now we're getting into the doctrine of irresistible grace. So here is, we're going to read two passages, one from Calvin's Commentary on John 6, 44, where Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draw him. And then we'll look at uh, a section of Calvin's work, the bondage and liberation of the will. 
All right, so this is his commentary from his commentary on John 6:44. No man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it is preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all, but that a new understanding and a new perception are requisite. And therefore, that faith does not depend on the will of man, but that it is God who gives it. The statement amounts to this, that we ought not to wonder if many refuse to embrace the gospel because no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ, but God must first approach him by his spirit, and hence it follows that all are not drawn, but that God bestows this grace on those whom he has elected. True, indeed, as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent so as to compel men by external force, but it is still a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. It is a false and profane assertion, therefore, that none are drawn but those who are willing to be drawn, as if man made himself obedient to God by his own efforts. For the willingness with which men follow God is what they already have from himself, who has formed their hearts to obey him. All right, now this is from The Bondage and Liberation of the Will by John Calvin on Irresistible Grace. But all that we say amounts to this. First, that what a person is or has or is capable of is entirely empty and useless for the spiritual righteousness which God requires, unless one is directed to the good by the grace of God. Secondly, that the human will is of itself evil and therefore needs transformation and renewal so that it may begin to be good. But that grace itself is not merely a tool which can help someone if he is pleased to stretch out his hand to take it. That is, God does not merely offer it, leaving to man the choice between receiving it and rejecting it, but he steers the mind to choose what is right. He moves the will also effectively to obedience. He arouses and advances the endeavor until the actual completion of the work is attained. All right. Now, to explain this a little bit further, here's John Piper from his book, Five Points. And this is on pages 27, 31, and 32. Piper writes, Irresistible grace refers to the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our heart and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. If the doctrine of total depravity as we have unfolded it in the previous chapter is true, there can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins and unable to submit to God because of our rebellious nature, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. It should be obvious from this that irresistible grace never implies that God forces us to repent or believe or follow Jesus against our will. 
that would even be a contradiction in terms uh, uh, in terms because believing and repenting and following are always willing or they are hypocrisy. Irresistible grace does not drag the unwilling into the kingdom. It makes the unwilling willing. It does not work with constraint from the outside like hooks and chains. It works with power from the inside like new thirst and hunger and compelling desire. So here is Irenaeus, and we're going to read two uh, passages from chapter 37 of his fourth book against heresies. And I, I do want to say that just like John Piper said, uh, basically irresistible grace hangs completely on the doctrine of total depravity. The early Christians, if you have been paying attention in this three-part series, the early Christians reject the doctrine of total depravity. They say that man is able is born with the capacity to receive or reject God, that we cannot save ourselves. We need the grace of God to be saved, but God has given us the ability to put our faith in him by his grace. He's given all people that ability. Okay, so I'm not going to read many um, many different uh, quotations from the early Christians because almost all of the previous quotations from the early Christians, except for maybe the stuff on limited atonement that you've heard, almost all of these uh, quotations come against the doctrine of irresistible grace. But I will uh, now read you two passages from Irenaeus's uh, work. All right. So this is again from uh, chapter 37 of Irenaeus's book against heresies, Irenaeus's work against heresies book four. So he writes, this expression of our Lord, how often would I have gathered your children together, but you would not will it. Set forth the ancient law of human liberty because God made man a free agent from the beginning, possessing his own power, even as he does his own soul to obey the behests of God voluntarily and not by compulsion of God, for there is no coercion with God, but a good will toward us is present with him continually. And therefore does he give good counsel to all. And in man, as well as in angels, he has placed the power of choice, for angels are rational beings, so that those who had yielded obedience might justly possess what is good, given indeed by God, but preserved by themselves. On the other hand, they who have not obeyed shall, with justice, be not found in possession of the good and shall receive uh, punishment. For God did kindly bestow on them what was good, but they themselves did not diligently keep it, nor deem it something precious, but poured contempt upon his supereminent goodness. Rejecting, therefore, the good, as and as it were spewing it out, they shall all deservedly incur the just judgment of God, which also the Apostle Paul testifies in his epistle to the Romans, where he says, But does thou despise the riches of his goodness and patience and long suffering, being ignorant that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
but according to your hardness and impenitent heart, you treasure to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Continuing with Irenaeus, he says, since all men are of the same nature, able both to hold fast and to do what is good. And on the other hand, having also the power to cast it from them and to not do it, some do justly receive praise even among men who are under the control of good laws and much more from God and obtain deservedly, deserved testimony of their choice of good in general and of persevering therein. But the others are blamed and receive a just condemnation because of their rejection of what is fair and good. He exhorts us to submit ourselves to him and seeks to turn us away from the sin of unbelief against him without, however, in any way coercing us. No doubt, if anyone is unwilling to follow the gospel itself, it is in his power to reject it but it is not expedient for it is in man's power to disobey God and to forfeit what is good. But such conduct brings no amount of injury. All right. Now let's get into the final doctrine of Calvinism known as the perseverance of the saints. So for this, we are going to look at Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion in Book 3, Chapter 24, Section 7. But it daily happens that those who seem to belong to Christ revolt from him and fall away. Nay, in the very passage where he declares that none of those whom the Father has given to him have perished, he accepts the son of perdition. This indeed is true, but it is equally true that such persons never adhered to Christ with that heartfelt confidence by which I say that the certainty of our election is established. They went out from us, says John, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. I deny not that they have signs of calling similar to those given to the elect, but I do not at all admit that they have that sure confirmation of election, which I desire believers to seek from the word of the gospel. Wherefore, let not examples of this kind move us away from tranquil confidence in the promise of the Lord, when he declares that all by whom he is received in true faith have been given to him by the Father, and that none of them, while he is their guardian and shepherd, will perish. So you can see Calvin holding to the common belief that uh, if anyone seems to have fallen away from Christ, he was never actually in Christ. Here is Piper uh, from five points in pages 63 and 64. It follows from what we saw in the last chapter that people of God will persevere to the end and not be lost. We mean that the saints will and must persevere in faith and, obe and the obedience which comes from faith. This means that the gospel is God's instrument in the preservation of faith as well as the begetting of faith. 
We do not act with a kind of cavalier indifference to the call for perseverance just because a person has professed faith in Christ, as though we can be assured from our perspective that they are now beyond the reach of the evil one. There is a fight of faith to be fought, and the elect will fight that fight. And by God's sovereign grace, they will win it. We must endure to the end in faith if we are to be saved. All right, now let's get into what the early Christians said about perseverance of the saints. In a sense, even though that doctrine, those words would have been completely foreign to them, of course. Here is the epistle of Barnabas written perhaps as early as 70 AD. He writes, The whole pastime of your faith will profit you nothing unless now in this wicked time we also withstand coming sources of danger. Take heed, lest resting at our ease as those who are the called, we fall asleep in our sins. For then the wicked prince acquiring power over us will thrust away from will thrust us away from the kingdom of the lord and you should pay attention to this all the more my brothers when you reflect on and see that even after such great signs and wonders had been performed in israel they were still abandoned let us beware lest we be found to be as it was written the many who are called but not the few who are cho- chosen. All right, here's Clement of Alexandria around 195. He writes, It is neither the faith, nor the love, nor the hope, nor the endurance of one day. Rather, he that endures to the end will be saved. God gives forgiveness of past sins. Each one procures this for himself. He does this by repenting, by condemning the past deeds and by begging the Father to blot them out. For only the Father is the one who is able to undo what is done. So even in the case of one who has done the greatest good deeds in his life, but at the end has run headlong into wickedness, all his former pains are profitless to him. For at the climax of the drama, he has given up his part. Here's Hippolytus in around the year 225 writing about a heretic named Marcus. Hoodwinking multitudes, Marcus the heretic deceived many persons of this description who had become his disciples. He taught them that they were prone, no doubt, to sin. However, He said that they were beyond the reach of danger because they belonged to the perfect power. Here's Origen around the same year, also writing about different heretical beliefs. Uh, Generally, this is about Gnostics. He writes, Certain ones of those heretics who hold different opinions misuse these passages. They essentially destroy free will by introducing ruined natures incapable of salvation and 
by introducing others as being saved in such a way that they cannot be lost. All right, moving to the year 250, this is Cyprian. Those who are snatched from the jaws of the devil and delivered from the snares of this world should not return to the world again, lest they should lose the advantage of their leaving it in the first place. The Lord admonishes us of this in his gospel. He taught that we should not return again to the devil and to the world. For we have renounced them and have escaped from them. He says, no man after looking back, sorry, no man looking back after putting his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. And again, let him that is in the field not return back. Remember Lot's wife. So we must press on and persevere in faith and virtue. We must complete the heavenly and spiritual grace so that we may attain to the palm and to the crown. In the book of Chronicles, it says, the Lord is with you so long as you are with him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Furthermore, in the same gospel, the Lord speaks and says, he that endures to the end, the same will be saved. Now, going to the beginning of the fourth century, this is Lactantius around the year 304 to 313. We're not totally sure. He writes, a son who deserts his father in order not to pay him obedience is considered deserving of being disinherited and of having his name removed forever from his family. How much more so does a person deserve to be disinherited who forsakes God in who the two names meet that are entitled to equal reverence, Lord and Father? Of what punishments, therefore, is he deserving who forsakes him who is both the true master and father? The last quote I'm going to share is from Tertullian around the year 198 AD. This is in his first apology. And um, this is some incredible pastoral advice given all that we've heard from the early Christians in this series It's almost like a concluding remark from him, a concluding bit of advice. So please try to take this to heart. He writes, We ought indeed to walk in a manner so holy and with so entire substantiality of faith as to be confident and secure in regard to our own conscience, desiring that it may abide in us to the end. Yet, We should not presume that it will, for he who presumes feels less apprehension. He who feels apprehension takes less precaution, and he who takes less precaution runs more risk. Fear is the foundation of salvation. Presumption is an impediment to fear. More useful than is it to apprehend that we may possibly fail than it is to apprehend that we cannot. For apprehending will lead us to fear, fear to caution, and caution to salvation. 
That bit of advice by Tertullian is very similar to belief in a pre-tribulational rapture versus a pre-wrath rapture. You know, it's fine to hope for the best in a sense. It's, It's good, you know, but you should prepare for the worst. We really should. If we prepare to have to endure to the end and then we are surprised by God and getting taken away before things hit the fan, great. But we should not presume that that is the way things are going to play out. We should rather take Jesus and his apostles at their word that saints will be around during the tribulation and we will need to persevere to the end, not loving our lives even unto death, as that will be a testimony to the world of the truth of the gospel. Well, I hope this series has been a blessing to you. Look forward to episode 100 and 101 when I get to the roots, the foundation of Calvinism as we look at a two-part series on the person of Augustine of Hippo. But until next time, may you filter everything you read through the simple words of Christ. God bless you. Lamb on.